Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash forum. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 55 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Ben Sherman. I haven't slept for 48 hours because that would be too long. James Uber. I love Stephen Wright. That's Mitch Hedberg. Oh, it is? Yeah. Pete Hodgson. Oh. <laughs> Good morning from Berkeley, California. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about uh, faking out the back end on your uh, iOS stuff. Pete's the expert here, recommended it. So, Pete, how what are we talking about? God, I'm an expert. <laughs> uh, Somebody called me a thought leader the other day. I was really confused. That's offensive. It's like, is someone behind me? Are <laughs> <laughs> you talking to someone else? So, well, let's start with a why would you want to do this, maybe? If you're testing your application, so your app normally talks to a bunch of back-end services. Most apps, I think, talk to at least one back-end service. That might be your own that you're building, or it might be one that you're, you know, a third-party service that you're using, like Pars or StackMob or something like that, or oh. Twitter or Facebook. Or no, I thought Stack you were talking about Facebook and Facebook. Well, don't they all talk to Facebook? <laughs> Actually, uh, StackMob got acquired by PayPal. I think they're shutting down their stuff. Weird. Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, if you're integrating with PayPal or Facebook, maybe <laughs> those are your two options, I suppose, now. <laughs> Or MySpace could be integrating with MySpace. They're, they're big in the music scene. Anyway, you need to talk to these backend services, right? Um, when it comes to kind of testing things, either manually testing things or, or doing test automation, sometimes you want to fake out those services. So you want to replace a real Facebook with a not real Facebook. I want to do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fake book. Yeah. Gee, I wonder yeah. if that domain's available. <laughs> I guess not. There's a, you know, there's different reasons you'd want to do this. So let's say you want this to simulate. Sometimes it's just for convenience. Like let's say you want to simulate a user who's been locked out of their account. Uh, so you want to test like that. The, you're working on some new UI for what you're going to show to the user when they try and log in and they're locked out because they haven't paid up this month or whatever. You could kind of like go over to the backend system and set up a user that's been locked out and then test something and then and then remove that user or whatever. But sometimes it's easier just to have like a fake version of the backend, and you can just kind of twiddle some knobs and say, next time this asks to log in, just pretend it's a fake user rather than a real user. Or sorry, just pretend it's a locked out user rather than a, rather than a regular user. So that's one scenario. So this is mostly in testing then, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I, can't, I guess there would be other scenarios, but I can't think of many. So, I mean, there's there's lots of scenarios where the scenario that you're trying to reproduce is somewhat difficult to do manually. Uh, and if you do do it manually, there are probably some steps you would have to take to set up the world in such a way that you can accurately test that. And then you test it, and then all that work is sort of gone because then you can't test it again without recreating those manual steps, right? Yeah. It's inconvenient to do that when you're doing manual testing. So it's still beneficial when you're doing manual testing, but once you're doing kind of automated testing it gets really really onerous to try and automate all of those manual setup and teardown steps and sometimes you can expose like an api that will do it for you but it's always super duper painful i think that's when most people start seeing faking out services is when you're doing uh, automated rather than manual qa yeah it's painful right like it's it becomes very very 
tedious. But if it's your full time job to be a QA in particular, it gets to be very tedious to be doing this stuff over and over again. Uh, one of my first jobs after college, I was working on this uh, ASP.NET application, and I was working on a screen that was like five or six screens deep into the app, and I was just clicking through, clicking through to get to the thing that I needed to test, and then I clicked the button to run a report, and then I would have to make my change and do all of that all over again. And it was particularly bad because the main body of the app was in an iframe, so it's not like you could direct link to it uh, very easily. Uh, so, I mean, the feedback cycle on that was just ridiculous. This is assuming you're testing your own internal services and you can actually do that. If you want to test, uh, let's say you're doing a Twitter app and you want to test what happens when someone blocks another tweet, maybe you can kind of simulate that scenario, but there's actually some scenarios that you literally cannot simulate unless you have access to the system. Dates is a you know kind of the canonical one of like, what happens on a leap year? Does it render February 28th correctly? Wait, is that tw- is it 28 or 29? I was 29. <laughs> See, that's why you need testing. Because <laughs> Pete can't do Pete's dates. The one doing the programming. <laughs> a few years ago, I was working on, a, on an iOS app for a bank, and we needed to check like what happens when a user has $10 million. Does it fit in the screen correctly? So uh, as a tester, you just need to get a $10 million deposit. That's, that's correct. And I mean, and really like for a while, that's what, um, some of the QAs did was they would go into the backend systems and kind of do the equivalent of transferring $10 million in a wire transfer or something like that. Like you do all these crazy things. And especially like these huge, huge enterprises like banks, the system that you need to get to to actually make that change is is like four continents away, like literally continents away in terms of the, the team working on it and all the rest of it. So it's very hard to uh, discover even what system to to use to simulate these these situations. So all of these things kind of point to using uh, fake versions of the services where where it's appropriate. So I think we've sold everybody on the. Yes, that's probably ideal. How do we do it? So, CDD with mocks. <laughs> no mocks. Actually, yeah, you can do it with mocks, actually. So when I talk about it, there's I kind of lump this into two main categories, um, what I call in-process and out-of-process. So process as in, you know, um, operating system process. So you, you can fake things out in-process. So you can actually use things like mocks or use a kind of a custom-built thing and replace your real network layer with a fake network layer. Back up, what, what is a mock? Oh, a mock is a shorthand term for what's also known as a test double. It's a kind of a class that looks and smells like a real duck, but is actually a rubber duck. So it's a, it's a fake version, or it's a, it's a not real version of something that you're, that you're replacing the real version with for, for testing purposes. Yeah, okay, so, so usually the- going to the internet, I've got some internet type thing that I can kind of control to my own whim. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and right. usually the way you use these things is you kind of say in your test code, you say, hey, next time you make a get to this URL, then please, you know, re- return this JSON payload or something like that. Or next time there's a post to this URL with these query parameters, make sure that you return this error condition or something, something along those lines. That's normally how I've seen those things used. And then sometimes people build kind of a nice API on top of that that's kind of domain-specific. So you, you, rather than saying when you go to this URL, return this JSON payload, the t- in, your, in your test you can say when the user logs in, simulate that they are locked out of their account. Very nice. So that, just, to, just to pick nits, that's a stub, though, correctly, right? 
Uh, so people aren't aren't calling in furious. Yeah. So a mock is a full-on fake-out object. So, for example, if you had like something that acts like the network layer in your application, and it exposes the right interface so that you can call it like you call the network layer, and it gives you answers like you would get from the network layer, but it's not the network layer, that's a mock. If you take the network interface class, or you override or otherwise uh, change the behavior on a particular method or function so that it still gives back the right answer, but it doesn't actually, you know, do all the work, then that's a stub. So that's in the terminology of, I'm guessing you're getting that from like RSpec or one of the testing tools in Ruby world. So I sighed a little bit when, when <laughs> James said that, because I don't actually think there's a, there's a very good definition and there actually, there's several competing definitions. So Chuck, I've heard the one that you've said before where mock is like you replace the whole thing and stub is you replace part of the things. In different programming communities, they use different words for that. So that thing that you called a stub maybe would be called a partial mock mm-hmm. or a live mock because you're modifying the real class. Anyway, there's what I'm, what I'm getting at is there's actually not... I don't think there's a very, very clear definition. The way that I think about it is you use a mock when, you're, when you want to check how the thing you're testing interacts with the thing that you're faking out. So you want to check that it calls things a certain way. So you're more testing the way that your system uses the thing rather than faking stuff out. A stub is when you just want to fake out that thing so that you can inject data into your test, which I think is what James was getting at. <laughs> but it's complicated, or it's, it's unclear in my mind. I, I can live with that word definition. You know. And if you were following the uh, Is TDD Dead fiasco recently, uh, if you haven't, uh, watch DHH's keynote from RailsConf and then watch the um, the hangout he did with Martin Fowler and Kent Beck. And I bring that up because both Martin Fowler and Kent Beck both said that they don't use mocks if they can avoid it, which is interesting. And when both of those guys say the same thing, you should take note. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of those early XPers didn't really... I mean, mocks are a fairly the m- mocking frameworks and kind of extensive use of of test doubles is a relatively more recent invention than unit testing itself. The automated unit test as a concept. So, and what's his face talks about that. Um, I can't remember who was. I think it was Gary Bernhard was was talking about that in his post. His kind of response to DHH. He was saying that. If you look at the timelines, actually, they're not quite the way that uh, DHA sets them up. But anyway, slightly off topic, I guess. Yep. Going back to uh, faking out the back end, you said that you don't necessarily have to use mocks, or are you... Right. I'm so, curious, anyway. So, well, there's, there's two levels of that. So you don't have to use a mocking framework. You can kind of use a, a thing that actually just full-on replaces, rather than you kind of mocking out methods, something that full-on replaces the network stack. But then the other kind of category of tools you can use if you don't want to use in-process things like test doubles is to basically do out-of-process fake services where you actually have a separate thing running somewhere, a separate process that's listening over HTTP, assuming you're, you're faking out HTTP, and it's listening for it's listening on a port just like a regular web server would, would do. And you configure your app to talk to that ser- to that server rather than the real, you know, Twitter or the real internal service. And then you can talk to that. You're, you normally would have a back channel or side channel kind of API that you use to talk to that service and say, "Hey, someone's about to call this. You um, send a get to you on this path. Uh, when that happens, please return this response." 
So a very similar idea, but done out of process. And there's a lot of kind of tools out there, like out of the box little services that you can use to, to, to build these things. So what does the out of bandwidth conversation look like? It depends a lot on which tool you're using. Some of the tools, so there's there's a few different kind of uh, techniques that, that I've seen used for these fake services. So one of them is kind of a record and playback approach where the fake service will act as a proxy and it will route all of the traffic through to the actual real backend service. So it's essentially doing a man-in-the-middle attack on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, or your services. So uh, by default, it will just be recording all of these interactions and just saving them to disk or something. And then at a later date, when you want to simulate different scenarios, you can go back through those recordings and say, oh, hey, rather than just passing this through to the back end, this time I want you to play back this recording. So I want, to si I want you to simulate this thing that happened before. And that's quite popular with manual QA. So where I saw that used a lot was that when I was working at this bank, they had this rather large fake service toolkit and one of them it had like this whole ui and you could like log in and uh, set up different scenarios and give them names and modify the the payloads they were returning and do all sorts of kind of fancy stuff and that was mainly used by qas who were doing manual testing so they didn't actually have to you know actually get 10 million dollars into their bank account or whatever okay so it sounds like some that's pretty cool because you're actually hitting a network you're actually getting a valid response that you might get from a service yeah but it sounds kind of tedious to set up and keep running and yeah, make changes yes. too. Mm -hmm. Yep, it is. It's a little bit more clunky. It's an, it's an extra moving part, and it's quite fiddly. If you do a good job, then it can be as easy to use in your tests as in process stuff. Although the mechanism is more clunky, you can kind of abstract that over with a nice API if, if, you, if, if you're willing to put the time into doing that. So yeah, there, there are some there are some trade offs there, but the but the benefit is it's a lot easier for manual QA to use. That's one thing, because um, it's you know it, it you can you can build an extra API on this thing, whereas it's quite hard to do that if you're doing all of the stuff in process. So it lends itself more to manual testing. That's a big win, or that's useful if you're doing that. And the I mean, other thing, it seems to me like you know you're talking about some benefits. There's definitely like trade offs where you get more, a more realistic like there's actually data going over the wire. You have to wait for the response, things like that. So you're actually exercising network code and maybe reachability code as well. Whereas yeah, true, if you true. do the, the the stubs like in a unit test or say unit test, an automated test, it might be advantageous or desirable to not hit the network uh, so that you are testing not whether or not your office has internet connection, but instead just testing that you made the request, you got the response, you parsed it, the JSON correctly or whatever, and uh, we're able to act on it. And you can do that much faster if you can stub it at the network layer, right? Yeah, true. Which I, I think is desirable for a large test suite to be able to run quickly and without the intermittent failures that might result in having a congested network or maybe somebody reset it, reset the router during the test run or something like that. I haven't I seen that be a problem that much, actually. I agree there's, there's other reasons to do it, but I actually I haven't seen reliability be that big a deal because normally you're you're running the server on the same machine if you're doing it in the simulator then you're running it on the same machine i guess if you're doing a lot of testing with with physical devices then maybe it would root head yeah, okay well, so you're actually running a, a service on your actual local machine that's the okay. way i've normally done it sometimes with uh if you've got like very non-technical qas then there'll be like a shared service because they don't know how to you know use the command line and start up a service and keep it up to date and all that kind of stuff yeah, I want to go back a little bit to the recorded responses. 
Um, I've wound up doing this quite a bit lately with uh, the client that I'm doing work for. And it, it is really nice because you get real data back that you can work with and you get a consistent response. So if they are down or if the network's down, like you guys have said, um, one thing that I did run into, though, is that if I made the request and there was even something just a little bit different with any of the parameters or anything, then I would get the error saying, I don't have a recorded response for that. Yeah, so normally what you can do is you can configure the tool to have kind of like wildcard parameters. Mm-hmm. And I think you could, if you're using VCR or something like that in, in Ruby World, you can do the equivalent thing there or, or WebMod. Yeah. Right, I was actually going to pick one of these. I'll just paste it in now. The uh, uh, VC URL connection by Dustin Barker is the, basically exactly what you'd expect if you're familiar with VCR in Ruby lands. So basically, it looks for a cassette, a recorded cassette file, and if it doesn't find one, it makes the request. And uh, if it does find one, it just returns the canned response headers. And uh, they're not canned, they're actually what you got last time. And uh, so that kind of gives you the best of both worlds. Like if you're calling... I don't know, Twitter to get a list of followers. Uh, once you have that response, you don't need to make that call every single time. And so it, to me, it seems really nice to have both a real response. So you know that that request made it through once, at least uh, successfully. And then periodically, you can delete your cassettes and rerun them so to make sure that the service hasn't changed or whatever. I haven't used VC URL connection yet, but I, I heavily use uh, VCR to keep my tests from hitting external APIs in Ruby. Yeah, the other nice thing uh, with the changing of the parameters is that if you do wind up making changes to your uh, wrapper around your service and it does wind up formatting something different or winds up getting a parameter if you're doing more integration-style testing where you know something else calls into it and so it's getting something that it shouldn't, then you'll get those errors and, and you get your red flag, hey, I changed something and now I'm asking for something different from the, from the service. So it can work both ways, but I found it a little bit brittle in the sense that, you know, if I'm writing a new test, I have to get those exactly right. They're super handy. So we talked about the out-of-process auto, tests. What are some of the in-process tests? How does that work? It, without using any other tools, except like unit test tools, you could use something like, you know, using Kiwi or um, OCMock. You can create a layer for all of your network interaction yourself and then mock out those uh, requests and responses. That's kind of a tedious, but you have ultimate control over how you want it to work. So you just say, okay, you should receive this selector, and when you do, you're going to return this uh, result. It gets a little bit tricky when the result is actually a callback block that you pass in. So something like, you know, fetch widgets with completion, and the completion block accepts as an argument the array of widgets that you received or maybe the NS data from the response, however you have it set up, it's not as easy as mocking that selector and returning a result because there's no return value anymore, right? You have to, you have to um, grab the block. And there's a couple of ways to do this. Uh, one of them is to use spies. And spies are kind of a complex topic, but basically it allows you to uh, intercept arguments passed to a method. And a good way to do that with uh, OCMock is to, there's basically uh, a way to verify arguments. So you might uh, verify that this method was called with the string hello, and that's like an exact check, right? But you could say this uh, argument was called with a uh, anything that's not nil. So I think that's a OCM arg any, which is kind of like a special object you place in, uh, and it will validate that argument. So using the same technique, uh, there's one that says verify with block. So it's um, OCMARG verify with block. You specify a block, 
and your block takes in the argument that was passed to the method. So now you can do you can do stuff uh, like maybe if the if you're expecting a string length of greater than five, then you would just do the check there and return yes or no whether or not it's a valid argument. So using that technique, you just your argument to the block is the callback block for that network call. Uh, so you cast it back to the 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 block type that you're expecting, and then invoke it uh, with the canned data. Does that make sense? It does. It's, it's, it's really hard to say yeah. without like I'm shaking my hands all over the place. It's really hard to say in words, and it's it's yeah, talking to show about it asynchronous paper. programming in on a podcast is uh, pretty tricky, uh-huh. <laughs> especially with OCMark or the. But if you if you get the the notion that uh, you can intercept the arguments passed to a method and verify them with a block, so I'm not really verifying that. Maybe you verify that the callback was non-nil. Right, but what I'm really trying to do is get a handle on the block passed into it, so that I can invoke it with my own canned data in the test. Uh, and so I will just do that. I'll just get a reference to the block. I'll invoke it, pass in my stubbed data. You know, whatever my, I want my response to be. Say it's like an empty list of widgets. I just return an array array, and then return yes, saying that the argument was valid. So I'm sort of piggybacking on that argument validator validating. Uh, system that OCMock uh, gives you. And there's a similar thing to do with this with Kiwi because this this concept of being able to, you know, it's easy when the arguments are well known, but what if it's like a a GUID from like a new customer that you can't possibly discern in your test that it gets created somewhere else. So you may just want to say, "Oh, it's a string in this pattern," or maybe it's a string that's got a length of greater than 1 or something. Uh so it's you can't always make exact comparisons uh on the arguments. So I've actually got a code example. I did a workshop, like a testing, iOS automated testing workshop a few years ago, a year or so ago. And it, we had an example that was actually pretty similar to what Ben is describing. But but what I normally try and do in those cases is is have, rather than mocking out at that very, very low level, I will make like a um, an API client class, like a custom custom written client class that represents that service so in in the example that we had we were simulating this bar we were, i was writing a bar app like a, a so, so bar is the the like the public transit system in the bay area and it's a little app that will tell you when the next bar is coming and you need to fake out when the next bar is coming so that you can test it so we had a class called bar client i think that was that exposed that api and it had that same kind of asynchronous block stuff that ben was talking about and we made a spy, but it was actually a lot easier just to actually hand roll that spy. So we just made a fake version of that Bart client class. And whenever you called it, rather than it actually doing anything, it just kind of grabbed the blocks that you passed in. And then the test could then go back to that spy and say, hey, pretend that this thing happened. So, hey, you were just called with the real code just called you and said, make this request and then return. And then when you're done, call me with the results. Now I want you to pretend you're done and return to that client with these results. So very very similar idea, but pretty much the same idea. Just Yeah, this this um, definitely looks like more explicit. And when when you either don't know how to accomplish like for instance, if you didn't know you were looking for the word spy because that's like yeah, a well known right. term, it's good to know that you can roll this stuff yourself and in languages where you don't have nearly the dynamic stuff that we do in Objective-C and Ruby, uh, sometimes this is required. It's kind of funny when I see that people are like doing TDD with C. Or <laughs> it's like, how, <laughs> wow. do you do, how do you even do it? Uh, people do it, but you, know, you have to get creative and uh, 
this seems like a really explicit implementation, which is pretty easy yeah. to understand. You know, yeah. it's just more code than than the spy yep. would be. Um, yep. The thing is, is when somebody comes across the spy code, the the OCM arg verify with block, and then you know the thing that I was talking about, it's not obvious what you're doing and why. Um, so that's the I only think, sort of downside, I think, to doing it that way is that it's easy to set up, but then when you come back and read it later, you're like, what is this doing again? And then you scratch, scratch your head a little bit. Yeah, and I think that was part of my motivation for doing it this way was because it was, it was a workshop, so I was teaching people how to do this stuff. So I didn't want to, I wanted to get the concept across of the spy and not have to actually, you know, I- explain the crazy you know, the, do the do the equivalent of that hand waving stuff that you were just doing, right? Where you're like, uh, and then there's this thing that you verify with this thing, and it is, it, sometimes it's easier if you lay it out in in code. Yeah. Right Actually, I have an example of that online. I will link to it of cool. exactly that, so that way people listening in their car can go back and look at it later <laughs> and know what I was talking about. So, Pete, I found that to be a pretty powerful pattern. So, what you're doing, you're taking your, you've got your like bar client, which normally goes to the bar service and gets a schedule. Is is that right? And you're so you're subclassing that, so you're creating a drive class, and you're just when you call the get schedule with block, you're just returning a can response of whatever the schedule is. Is that right? Mm, almost, but not quite. I, when because it's asynchronous, when someone calls, you know, get schedule schedule with with block, I don't do anything. This this the fake version, the the spy doesn't do anything at all. All it does is make is is grabs that block and keeps it for later. And then later on, the test, the next step of the test will say like, okay, um, now I want you to simulate this schedule coming back. So it's almost this, what you were saying, Jane, but it's the extra kind of complication of it being asynchronous. So it won't return straight away. And actually, so funnily enough, I talked about this in quite a lot of detail on Chuck's JavaScript podcast because I I was on I was on I'm on all Chuck's podcasts. Uh, I was on that podcast talking about how to do this asynchronous testing in JavaScript, where it's a lot more of an issue because everything's asynchronous. So there's interesting parallels. It would actually be really nice if Objective C had a nice promises library. It it would make all of this stuff way way easier. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious. You know what one looks like if the language even supports it. Uh, you know, it's one of the things yeah. I I am sort of envious of uh, C Sharp about is the await keyword, which allows you to write code. And I've never used it. I've just kind of seen examples of it. So maybe I'm getting some of the details wrong. But it allows you to write code that looks somewhat uh, imperative, just step by step, you know, call this, call that. And under the hood, it gets rewritten to be async with callbacks. But you don't have to nest blocks everywhere to get that. Yeah, it would be awesome if it would be really, you know, what? I I would not be that shocked if Apple did something like that, given their kind of history of doing crazily impressive stuff with Clang and Mm -hmm. doing like turning. The thing is, is, the thing is, is there's no hiding it. Uh, Clang is open source. So uh, you would see the tea leaves like at least a year in advance uh, in the open source uh, mailing list. Uh, I saw the, uh, I have a friend who like reads those, the forums and the release notes and all the commits. Uh, yeah, he's he's an interesting, uh, you know, he has his unique interests, I'd say. But anyway, so he told he sent me a link to the module uh, stuff, and I was really thinking. I even read the whole spec and what it was trying to do, and and uh, my my initial thought was that it was going to be namespaces for Objective C, and I was like, yes, that's going to be great. Turns out namespaces are really really difficult uh, to implement in in Objective C and may never come, uh, but it turns out the module was more of a um, like a header optimization strategy, uh, and 
you know, in practice in Xcode, you can just say, you know, at import module name, like core location, and it imports the headers, and it will automatically take care of linking the framework for you as well. So, but it's it's more of a, a header optimization thing. But yeah, it is it is really nice. You know, if you think you need core data, and you just say at import core data, no quotes. And oh uh, wow, yeah, it's pretty cool. But you have to be able to understand how like what these features mean when they get proposed and discussed on the on the mailing list. It's not always obvious. Uh, I will say, though, if we saw some new keywords, I think that would make news pretty quick. Well, I know there's a lot of Clang developers that listen to the podcast, so hopefully one of them will take our idea and run with it. And give I us think 100% of the Clang developers. That's what I've heard. 56.7% uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> of statistics are made up on the spot. So uh, one thing I did want to kind of do more of a, a as a brain dump than anything else is to talk through some of these some of the tools that are out there in the out of process world. One thing I didn't mention of the advantage of out of process mocking, so having a kind of a service server actually running, you can share these across across multiple platforms. So if you're developing Sin of Sins, an Android app, for example, then you you're generally your API is obviously going to be the same that that thing is using. So it's kind of it can be quite beneficial to to do out of process. So there's a few different tools out there that I've used or played with that, that I like a lot. Luke Redpath, the inimitable machine of productivity that is Luke Redpath, <laughs> um, <laughs> has this Ruby gem called Mimic, which is essentially a little Sinatra app plus some extra stuff to make it easy to, to build fake services. So that's that's a good one. I'll put all of these in the show notes once I'm done talking about them. There's like 17 of these that have been built by Fort Workers because we're kind of obsessed with building testing tools and then rebuilding them and then rebuilding them. Maybe part of our downfall as well. Uh, one that isn't by Fortworks is uh, this thing called Mocky. And this, this one has like a very rich user interface and has lots of the record and playback features. It's, uh, it's the one that they were using at this bank. Um, and it's very, uh, very, very rich in terms of like usability. Then there's a Fortworks one called Moco, which um, I really like. You can either run that in process if you're a Java person or out of process if you're not. There's another similar one called Stubby4j, which is pretty similar. And an interesting one is this uh, thing called, I think, I don't know how to pronounce this. It's called Montbank, I think. So it's a similar idea of an out of process um, fake service, but it has this extra kind of thing that it will actually simulate it'll fake out not just http but other protocols as well so if you're doing a lot of um, smtp for example which you're probably not going to do from an iphone but if you're using like a lower level uh, web sockets library or or some low level tcp thing then you can use montbank to stub out those protocols to fake out those protocols as well and it's actually the, the the montbank website is quite good because it has some quite nice diagrams that explain the concept of uh, of what it's doing so those are those are some good tools that are out there to look into if you're if you're interested in the in the um, the out of process world. Very cool. So what are some other approaches for like the the in process stuff? We talked about creating spies and subclassing our our clients. I've heard about people actually going through and stubbing out NSURL responses. So if they're even if they're using like AF networking, they're actually going in and stubbing out the responses. So they're testing the entire stack, the mapping mm-hmm. to the objects. I would, have any of you guys done that? Yeah, I've played around with uh, this this one library called OHHTTP stubs, and uh, this will hook into NSURL connection, NSURL session, and any of the frameworks that use those two. 
such as AF networking. Uh, it wouldn't work if you're using some homegrown BSD sockets-based networking system like uh, like ASI HTTP request. So migrate off that library if you're still using that. <laughs> but yeah, so pretty much any networking library, including hand-rolled ones, will work with OH HTTP stubs. And the idea is you just say, okay, you set up a stub, and then you uh, make the request, and you give it a response. It, it actually gives you an NSURL request, and you are responsible for giving it the response. So it seems like this is probably the most common I've seen. I mean, it's got a lot of stars on GitHub. I don't know of any others. Okay, cool. The other one that I've heard of before is Nocilla, but I don't know. I'm looking at it. Oh, yeah, yeah, that does does sound familiar. Have we had Stu Gleedow on the show? No, but we need to. Yeah, he's he he's actually a really good guy to talk to about this stuff because he does a lot of a lot of stuff. He has a lot of good opinions around networking and APIs and stuff like that. We should definitely get him on the show. Actually, mm-hmm. I think he pointed me to Nocilla. So this is Nocilla. Oh, from, Nocilla will um, work with ASI HTTP requests. Oh, perfect. You, <laughs> you should still, to, you yeah, should still keep, migrate keep on that, that, guys. Keep, <laughs> no need to move <laughs> off it. You can use Nocilla. Uh, I still run across code that uses ASI. I'm like, really? First thing yeah. we do is get off this. <laughs> I, it was such a great library, you know, back in the day. It's just unfortunate that uh, that a the developer decided to to leave. He was a great guy, by the way. He was really really helpful, but got kind of a lot of hate because it, you know, he wrote this thing to support his own needs back when you didn't have a good API for network requests, and that didn't come, in my opinion, a usable network library didn't come until iOS seven. The NSURL connection was just way too clunky. But yeah, so, I mean, the fact is, it didn't build on top of the NSURL loading system, so any improvements Apple made to performance or bug fixes or whatever, you can't benefit from. In addition, there's libraries like these that hook into NSURL connection and NSURL session, and so, again, you benefit by uh, sitting on top of those things to to benefit from the work of others. So Yeah, free software isn't like... Free, free as in toilet. You know, I'll put a toilet out in my <laughs> in my front yard, but don't don't complain to me if you clog it. You know, uh, you can use the toilet. But yeah, it's a problem. But no, that, it was a great library. He's like, oh, this is hard, and didn't went on doing something else. It would be kind of nice if uh, AF networking had something built into it. it just occurred to me because well, that's like, well, so, be like slightly. I mean, that's level. kind of against the mantra of the framework is to not be gigantic and not be mm. you know a bloated thing with too many features. So yeah. in the in the latest AF networking two branch, they removed features and uh, pulled them in as separate you know, subspecs and cocoa pods. So when you pull in AF networking, you can pull in ever, everything that you had before, but they're actually separated. So you can just pull in the I forget what it is the core. So if you don't want things like the UI image view category for loading an image from a URL, uh, you can not pull that in, uh, which I think is is good. I, I like there's all these handy tools, but you don't have to pull them all in at once. It's kind of nice. So there's a list of AF networking extensions. There's a lot of them, actually. So, um, you know, you can take a look in here and see, you know, there's some official extensions like AF JSON RPC client or... or uh, Amazon S3 client to a bunch of third-party ones like Gravatar clients and CSV request operations, things like that. That becomes interesting, actually, and I've had people ask me this quite a lot when I've talked about these faking out services, is what do you do when it's not your code that's... You're not the one talking to the service, it's some third-party library, so you're using the the GoWalla API or, or you know the, the, the client library for MySpace the iOS client library for MySpace. 
you, you kind of you've got two options at that point. You either do that this kind of shimming thing where you one of these tools that actually fakes out, kind of sticks itself in between the low level network and any of your code, and then you're you're stuck with having to figure out what the API actually looks like, or you can fake out the the client library, which is normally a better choice, I think, in, in that situation. Yeah, I, I tend to agree um, as far as mocking out the the client library goes. I mean, then you have a certain level of control, and you you know you can make the assumption that the client library then does the right thing, and right. you can return something that looks like or is the type of object that is going to be returned by the uh, client library. Right. And as bad as Ben said earlier, you know the trade off there is now you've got you're you're doing less integration testing, so. You know, the thing, there's the scope of your tests is smaller, which is good because it means your tests are more focused, but it's bad because if you don't have something higher level, a broader scope test that's testing the whole thing, including that client library, then you're exposing a risk. There's two big risks in these situations. One, the client library is crap and has bugs in it, uh, which is not uncommon, actually, particularly if it's written by people who aren't iOS um, experts, which is quite often the case when it's, you know, they have to build a client library for Android, JavaScript, iOS, everything else. <laughs> the other big risk is that you're not using it the right way and you don't know that you're not using it the right way because you're faking out your interactions with it. So there might be some subtle rule that's very well documented in the in the in the docs that says, you know, uh before you make a request to do this, you have to first make sure you've done this other thing. And in your low level tests, even if you're not doing that, everything will work because you don't know to check that. But then when you go and use it in real life, it, w- it won't work in some situations. So there, there is that, that trade-off there that if you tighten your scope, then your, your tests have got more focus, but it means that you're missing out on that integration level. And that's what bit DHH apparently is. He didn't know that he had to write integration tests for his attachments in Basecamp, and that's why he had bugs. <laughs> <laughs> that's it right there. Go figure. So we, we talked about mocking in iOS, and so we talked about OC mock, which has been around forever. Pretty Just celebrated its 10-year anniversary. 10 years, that's pretty amazing. And yep. as Ben alluded to, some of the syntax can be pretty daunting. There's another library that I, I've used and kind of enjoy. I've used OCA Makito, which takes its lead from the Makito project in Java, which does a couple things that I think are, are, are pretty nice, where it lets you put your assertions, was it before? Oh, I, I, totally, I totally forgot what it is, the benefit. I haven't like been testing ra- in a while. Like their range act assert? Uh, style? Yes. So yeah, you do it, you run things, you run the test, then you put the what happens. So you can kind of verify what you wanted to happen did happen. It also has nice mocks by default. So every time you change something, it doesn't break your tests. But it's a pretty cool library. So <laughs> so nice mocks in other frameworks, the opposite of that is called strict mocks, right? So yeah. that if, if any interaction happens outside of what you've specified, it will throw an exception, which can be useful, like if you're writing a controller that will fire a missile, probably only want to do that once. Uh, <laughs> yep. uh, or, you know, whatever, make an HTTP request once or whatever. But whereas with a nice mock behavior, like it won't fail if that method yeah. gets called twice or if some other method that's sort of a helper, you know, gets called in the process of, of doing whatever. I, I definitely prefer the nice mocks unless I, unless I want the strict mock behavior. Yes, um, OC mock. <laughs> Doesn't OC mock behave the same way? The default is strict, which you find out pretty quickly when you start breaking tests every time you touch the code. Yeah. But you, it's pretty I, easy yeah, to do I, a I nice box so. with whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it, it goes back to terminology. You know, like, do you know what the 
you know, a, a nice mock is versus a strict mock or a spy. Another one that, uh, like we talked about earlier, was partial mocks, where you're mocking some method of an existing instance of a class. So rather than rather than say like here is a mock object that is its own instance, and you're specifying behavior uh, programmatically at test time, a partial mock would be like, okay, I'm going to new up some ob- other object that already has behavior, and I want all that behavior except for this one method that does something side effect or dangerous. You know, I'm going to mock out just that one method and and return some can value. Yeah, partial mocks are very awesome. Unfortunately, not an OC Mockito. Yet, if you want that, he won't put it in there. But they are an OC mock, and I use them quite a bit. And they're great if you want to stub out something from the framework. You know, you've got just something that would be a singleton that you get from iOS. You can just stub it out. Yeah, I get what you mean. You've got like this big old chunky API, and you just want to fake out one part of it. Yeah, some class method on something you can. Yeah. Break out a partial mock and have it return whatever you want. I, I do understand why John doesn't want to put them in there, though. But I'm guessing he just fundamentally doesn't agree with people doing that stuff. And I've seen it really badly abused, where people just get really confused at what the point of mocking is, and they end up like partially mocking the class that they're testing, and then they test that their partial oh, yeah. mock works rather than their <laughs> test. Yeah. yeah, awesome. I've fallen into that too, and then you're like, well, yeah, "What am I actually proving here? Nothing." And you know, there's. That's part of the right. The, the red green refactor is a good uh, sort of step to follow because you need to like see it fail and see that it's going to pass once you write production code. But if you're doing all your work in your tests and your test passes, <laughs> it should tell you something. I actually have had cases where I've done partial mocks on the code I'm testing. If you've inherited some massive view controller that does all these crazy things, every once in a while I've put in a partial mock saying, just don't break or blow up if I call this. So it yeah it, it can be used in some cases, but in general, yeah, bad idea. It's a good power tool, but you need to understand understand that it's a bad idea in in a lot of circumstances. Definitely, I'm so I, waiting for the with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> I just the framework for adults, <laughs> grown ups only. <laughs> I just noticed that the um, OC mock uh, Eric Dorenberg looks like it looks like he's working on OC mock three. Which does do um, mockito style verify after doing so. That's is interesting. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm not sure uh, how long that's been going. He actually he was he, so he's a fort worker and he was posting on an internal mailing list about the 10 year anniversary and he's he's I think he's got some like renewed energy to to brush the brush some of the cobweb, cobwebs off of OC mock since it's been around for 10 years and it's kind of a, a, a veteran at this point. Interesting. Should we get to the picks? You guys keep saying cool stuff, and so I would kept <laughs> waiting. James, you want to start us off with picks? Oh, man. If I pick Moxfar and Stubbs, am I taking your pick, Pete? Uh, you very welcome to, because I I'm I have another pick. Okay. Yes, you are. We can share the pick. Fight, fight, fight. We can give it a plus one. I was first, so I get to go first. But if you want to get into pendactic arguments about what a stub is and what a mock is, you should probably read it, because everyone talks about it differently. As I've learned today, what is a pendact? Pendetic, pedantic. It's a word I can't. Pedantic. Thank you. So if I'm being Words. pedantic, I'm going to correct your pronunciation of that word. Thank you. I I appreciate the the correction. Words today. I don't know. They're not working for me. It's a Minnesota thing. Yes. Pedantic. We've got our own pronunciation of some words. But anyway, that's a great article to read to get a kind of a base overview of what we talked about and get an idea for how everyone talks about it differently. And I'm going to make a pick for the comedian Stephen Wright because I misapplied 
the Mitch Hedberg quote, and I, I feel bad about it. But I much of my life, I used to annoy people. If they asked me if I slept well, I would say, no, I made a couple of mistakes. And that's a Stephen Wright joke, and he, <laughs> he's funny. It probably dates me that I, I confuse Mitch Hedberg with Stephen Wright jokes, because Stephen Wright, you, know, you don't really hear much about him anymore, but great comedian. So if you like Mitch Hedberg, you'll love Stephen Wright. Cool, I'll have to check that out. All right, Pete, what are your picks? Uh, I got a couple. Uh, well, I've got a plus one on that Martin Fowler article. The other one, I think I might have picked this book before. There's this book called X-Unit Tests, uh, X-Unit Patterns. It is encyclopedic in size. It's very big. Uh, it's really, really good read. Uh, it also has a, a good website, uh, xunitpatterns.com. And if you go to xunitpatterns.com slash test double, uh, or if you just go, go to xunitpatterns.com and search for test double, it has a probably alternative definition of all of these different things, test, dub, test stubs, test spies, mock objects, fake objects, etc. The website has a, almost all of the patterns, but kind of in reduced form. The book is definitely worth buying. You, you, I would be amazed if you managed to make it all the way through. It's really big, but it's a great reference material. It goes into this in a lot of detail. So that's my first pick. Uh, my second pick is a shameless pug for a new thing that I'm, I've been pottering around with releasing for the longest time, so I'm just going to release it and see if people want to use it. It's a thing called Postcards, and it's for doing visual feedback from, from testers. So... Uh, the idea is you install this little thing in your little framework in your iOS app, and then uh, when someone wants to report a bug or a visual defect or just give you feedback, they do this magical triple tap, uh, and then they fill in a form, and then they hit submit, and then you get a screenshot of what they were doing and um, and their postcard. So that's at uh, www.postcard.es. And cool. I'd love to get feedback from people on that, so use it and tell me what you think. Good deal. It sounds so interesting. I have some instant feedback. Real-time feedback. Okay. Uh, you, dub, dub, dub is required. <laughs> <laughs> you should do it with just the root. Yeah, I know. I, so so I'm, I'm hoping that by actually putting this out here, then by the time the podcast is released, I'll, I'll be like, oh, I need to do that, my little to-do list of 15 things that I've got to get, get done. Yeah, that's cool. Good idea. Yeah, thanks. All right, Ben, what are your picks? One is an AF networking extension called AF Archiver by a friend of the show, Kevin Harwood. Har, har is HTTP archive, and so AF Archiver is a way to basically record and save off uh, an archive of network requests that were made. So again, if somebody's testing your app and they're like, no, I got this weird error, or it crashed, or something like that, you can pull up this log of all the requests that were made. Uh, so that was uh, that's actually cool to ship in like a QA version of your app. I've also been enjoying this iPad game. It's quite old. It's called The Room. Uh, right now it's 99 cents and there's a sequel. So you have, it's kind of like waiting for three seasons of shows to show up on Netflix. So you can just like watch them all at once. I really enjoyed this. It's a, it's a puzzle game. It's, I don't know. I, I basically played it nonstop until I beat it. Uh, so I'll be picking up the room too pretty, pretty soon. Uh, that's a lot of fun. Also two, uh, shameless self-promotion picks. One of them, I don't think I mentioned on the show that I released, uh, Giggle Touch again, a big update. Uh, to Giggle Touch, uh, which is an app for toddlers. Ooh. Oh, yeah. So go to giggletouch.com, and there's a link to the App Store. It's an update, so if you already had it, you just get it for free. Otherwise, it's 99 cents, but uh, it's a game I made in, with uh, Sprite Kit. And also ordered some new shirts and hoodies for NS Screencast. And uh, the reason I mentioned that is that if you want to get an order in and have it shipped to you for 
U.S. residents uh, before WWDC. Time's running out uh, to get that out. Uh, so if you're interested in a shirt or a sticker or something for in a screencast, uh, go check out the store. And then lastly, uh, Beer Pick. Uh, really, really been enjoying Dirt Wolf Double IPA by Victory Brewing Company. Victory just makes really, really good beers in general, and Dirt Wolf is no exception. So if you see that, pick it up. All right. Well, I'm going to jump in. I just have one pick, and that is I was looking around for kind of a DIY adjustable standing desk. Um, I want something that's electronic. I don't want to have to adjust it manually. Um, and I found one, and um, I'll put the link in the show notes, but basically it's one that you can build just out of wood, and you get some uh, linear actuators, and uh, it seems to work real well. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to building that. I guess I have to disclaim I haven't tried it yet. But uh, yeah, so if you're interested, then I'll have a link to that in the show notes and you can check it out. And thanks for coming. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. <laughs>